Jonah. We're going to be in chapter 1, uh, verses 4 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on page 774 in the Bible right in front of you. If you've happened to walk in here and you don't actually own a Bible, please take that. Uh, that is our gift as a church to you, and we would be happy for you to take that. No one will ask you questions as you walk out the door. Um, you know what? It'd be helpful if I went there as well. There we go. <laughs> uh, Jonah is not a parable. I think two weeks ago, Nathan kind of laid that out for us, but I think it's really important for us to remember that. This is history. It is history. This really happened. And if we are tempted to doubt that it really happened as we look at the kind of crazy things that happen in this book, we need to remember that both Jesus and the Apostle Paul looked back at this and said, this is history. This really happened. It is not a parable. I say that. There are some things about it that are kind of parable-ish though, okay? And so just remember, before I say what I'm about to say, it is not a parable. It is really history. But the way that, the, the way that this history is written, it's written to make a point. And it's written actually very similarly to the way that Jesus tells some of his parables. And in fact, uh, some of the similarities, first of all, this, boy, this book makes a point at the end. We don't get an ending to this book that is in any way satisfactory because it's written the way it is to make us think and to use this book as a mirror, even as it's telling history, as a mirror into our own hearts and our own souls. One of the other things that I think is going to be really important as we look at our text this morning is that this book specifically, like a parable, like one of Jesus's parables, takes two characters. Actually, we've got several characters here, but Jesus in his parables would often hold up as an example a person who really nobody would have thought would have been the good guy in the parable. And the people that are supposed to be the good guys in the parable, those are the ones that are not Good, And I think we're going to see that today as we look at this, that Jonah, not only in this passage, but throughout the rest of this book, he's not the good guy. Jonah is the one who ought to be the one who is following the Lord and fearing him with all of his heart. But throughout this entire book, the people who are actually fearing the Lord and listening to him and following him are the pagan Gentiles who no one would have thought would have actually responded to the Lord as they do. And so, as we get into this, this text, and as we continue to read the book of Jonah, what we need to ask ourselves is this, and the end of the book will make this clear. We need to ask ourselves, who are we more like? Are we like the pagans in this story, or are we like Jonah? Who is more godly? Who are we like? Well, last uh, time we got together, we just to update us on what's happening in the story, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah said no, and went the other way. There we go. You're all caught up. Now let's read God's word together. Beginning in verse four, God's word says this. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah 
had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are, are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us a time to gather and a place to gather uh, to worship you, uh, both in, in the singing that we have done in, in prayer and also at the, uh, at the digging into your word that we are doing right now. Father, we pray, uh, would you bless us in this time? Father, would you open our hearts and our minds, illuminate to us by your Holy Spirit the words um, of this text for us this morning? Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that all of this would be done for your honor and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we look at these passages, one of the things that comes up over and over again is the fear of the Lord. And in fact, the, the psalm we read earlier said, kind of what the main point of this passage is, is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And some questions we need to ask ourselves as we go through this is, who really fears the Lord in this text? And again, as we reflect on it, we need to think, who are we more like? And so the, as we look, we're going to break it down into three points like we normally do. Uh, but this text kind of breaks down into four through six, the mariners fear. And then in seven through 10, the mariners hear. And then in 11 through 16, the mariners fear the Lord. So the mariners fear, they hear, and then they fear the Lord. Let's look together at verse four. 
So Jonah has left. God has told him what he is supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be going to Nineveh. And, and Jonah, for his reasons that we'll find out later, he, instead of obeying, he packs up and heads in the opposite direction. He is going to Tarshish. So he gets in a boat, and that is where he is going. Well, the Lord will not stand for that, and he hurls a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest Kids, that, temp, that word tempest means storm. We don't use that word anymore, but maybe we should because it's kind of fun, all right? Tempest, it is a massive storm, and it's from the Lord. As Jonah will say later, we just need to remember this, God is the one who made the sea and the land, and so he can hurl storms, he can put storms wherever he wants them at any point. And so this is a, a good reminder for us as we look at all the supernatural events into the book of Jonah, we just need to remember that God is the one who by his word created the entire universe. At his word, the galaxies were put in place and the tiniest of atoms were set in their motion. And so if God is the God who can do that great work of creation with his entire, with just his word, and he makes the entire universe in a moment, then the remaining supernatural events in this book, although they seem rather crazy to us, ought not to seem very strange when we think of the true might and power of God. And so God sends this storm upon this ship in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and it is so bad that it threatens to break up the ship. And so we see the reaction of the mariners. They are afraid. By the way, that's just a, a little helpful tidbit for us. Uh, when the mariners are afraid, then we know it's a big storm, all right? Kids, how many of you have been on a plane before, all right? Anybody experienced turbulence? Adults, you can raise your hand too, that's fine. All right, how many of you have experienced turbulence? All right, how many of you felt a little freaked out by the term turbulence, okay? All right, kids, here's a rule, all right? You don't need to, to get crazy about turbulence. Do you know the one time you should start to get a little worried? when the flight attendants look like they're worried, okay? That's kind of what's happening here. These are mariners, they're sailors. They know what they're doing on the water. They've been through storms before. These are Navy guys, they, they know the water. It's like their second home. And so the fact that these salty sea dogs, as we might call them, are afraid in this situation, we know this is a big storm. They are seeing and experiencing desperate terror. They are realized they are in over their heads. So what do they do? They start to solve, try and solve the problem in the only ways that they know how. The first thing they do is they, they cry out to their gods, little g, gods. And the reason they do that, the, the gods and why they're doing it for multiple things, gods at that point, again, little g gods, not real gods, they're idols, they were believed to have specialized areas of influence, kind of like if we were to look at Greek mythology or something like that. There's, there's a god of this sea, or there's a god of this part of the sea, or, or there's a god of land, and not only was it that, but then all of the different gods, you could actually make one of them more or less mad at you uh, without even meaning to. And so what they're doing is they're trying to cry out to whoever will listen to them to try and solve the problem. But not only are they crying out to false idols, but they attempt to save themselves as well. 
You see that they're, they're throwing the cargo that was in the ship, probably the very reason that they went on the trip in the first place. They're throwing it over. They are just in survival mode now. Now, I said at the beginning that we often, in, in, well, in this story, what we're often gonna find is that the people who we least expect to be the, the, the heroes or the, or the ones that we should see as an example are the ones that we least expect. Uh, this isn't the case here, all right? They are idolatrous people, all right? They are attempting to save themselves. Neither the option of trying to save themselves nor crying out to idols is a commendable part. We'll get into where we should look at the mariners and see them as an example, but this isn't it. We need to remember that scripture th throws out to us again and again, idolatry and the worship of idols is futile. Isaiah 44 says this, they, they know not, nor, they, they, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes, talking about people who worship idols, so that they cannot see in their hearts, so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, talking about an idol, half of it I burned in the fire, half I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Idols are futile. They can do nothing. These false gods are not real and they're crying out to, to nothing. Another thing we need to remember about idolatry is that it's, it's evil. It's giving the glory that God deserves to something else. In fact, Romans 1, 21 through 23 puts it very clearly about those who worship idols. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came, became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so in this situation, we should not look at these mariners and think, oh, that's, that's something that we ought to do. But then we ought to look at Jonah here. What in the world is Jonah doing? Jonah is down in the inner part of the ship and he's laying down and was fast asleep. The one person who knows exactly what is happening, who knows the source of the storm, the reason for the storm, and the solution to the storm is asleep. <clears throat> in fact, he's so much, he's so far gone asleep that the, the captain has to come down. This pagan captain has to come down and he is the one who has to encourage the prophet of God to start praying. And so just as we, we think about this for a second, I wanna, before we move on to the next point, as we, as we think specifically about the mariners, I think we ought to look at these mariners and we may be, should look at them and see, in this little section of them, see the lost in the world today. And so brothers and sisters, uh, as we think about the lost, those who do not know Christ in our world, I think it's really easy for us to actually look at the idolatry and sin 
that they have. I think it's really easy, especially depending on what news sites we look at, to look at the world around us and think, yeah, that's the way they're going wrong, that's the way they're going wrong, that's the way they're going wrong, and that's the reason that everything is going terrible right now. It is really easy for us to look outside of ourselves and see the sin of the lost, but I wonder, I wonder when we when we look at the lost world around us, if we look at the dying and broken people around us, do we ever see sinful people? Yes. But do we see broken, fearful, sinful people who are blindly groping in the dark for solutions to their brokenness and the brokenness in the world? Is that what we see? Or do we just buy into what we see in the news? I honestly think that we need to wake up like Jonah and we need to really truly see, yes, there is sin and there is idolatry in this world that is evil. But at the same time, the lost in this world are deceived. They are sinful and they need a redeemer. And I wonder, are we like Jonah and are we asleep? Are we completely ignoring what's happening in the world around us or are we reaching out with the good news of the gospel, the only solution to all of the brokenness in the world? Or are we asleep? We'll come back to that. Well, the mariners, are they fear, but then the mariners hear. In the midst of their trying to figure out what's going on, they, they eventually get together and they said to one another, come, let's cast lots. That's like throwing dice or maybe drawing straws. What they're doing, they have to figure out, all right, who's the reason that we're in this situation? All right, why is this coming upon us? We've got to figure it out and we've got to figure out how to solve the problem. And so right here and now, as we see what they're about to do, we ought to know Jonah is in trouble. And we ought to know that simply, we just need to go to Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Jonah is in trouble because God is sovereign even over a cast of the dice. That's not encouraging any of us to go cast dice in any way or draw straws for anything. But in this case, we need to look and see Jonah's in trouble because God is the one in control and he is going to be called out. And so we ought not be surprised when the, they cast lots and who does the lot fall on? Jonah. Because he is the one who is the reason for this storm. And so what follows is what, what uh, really detectives nowadays should probably look at because this is a great background investigation that happens into Jonah. They ask him a series of questions and they are desperate to find the answers Whose account has this evil come upon us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you of? They've got to figure this out because they've got to figure out how to survive this storm. And so Jonah at this point does, seemingly reluctantly, because he hasn't said a word yet, but he says the one thing that we ought to admire about him now. And he tells them the truth. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I am a Hebrew, sailors from Joppa, that's close by. And if we remember from what Nathan said a couple weeks ago, this was a time of expansion in the, the nation of Israel. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't have been like, who, who's a Hebrew? They, they would have known what that is. 
And he said that he fears the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Later we'll see as probably right here as he's talking to them, he reveals to them in verse 10 why he was there. He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And so he tells them the truth. He reveals to them who the true God of heaven and earth is, who the creator of all things is, and the fact that he's running away with, from him. And how do the mariners respond? Say, what is this that you have done? They're afraid. But they ask him, what is this that you have done? And I think, I think there might be two reasons that they're asking him that. Number one, it just, it doesn't make sense. Jonah is saying, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. By the way, he made literally everything. And so I think that these, these mariners who have been thinking about all these other little gods and all the, you know, just trying to figure out, all right, this God is, all right, we're, we're in his territory now. And so we've got we to think about him. And, and then, well, wait, you, you were hanging out in this God's area. Did you make him mad? They're thinking of that. And all of a sudden they hear, no, there's one ultimate God who made all things. And then this guy who's supposed to be fearing him, you just said you feared him, Jonah. You're trying to run away from him? He made everything. What is this you have done? That doesn't make sense. That's foolish. But I think they might be asking him this in another way too. Is that you serve this God and you believe he made everything? And you, you ran away from him and then you dragged us into it with you? Do we, do we matter to you, Jonah? Are we just tools to you to get you from one place to another? And I think here we can look and, and we can look at this text here and we can start to ask the question, who actually fears the Lord? Jonah says that he fears the Lord with his words. But when we see and look at Jonah's life, his life is telling a very different story than the words that are coming out of his mouth. The God who made heaven and earth and all things told Jonah to go to Nineveh and Jonah, if he were fearing the Lord, would have gone and gone right there. Yet Jonah turns around and runs in the other direction. The mariners get it. They get it. And it says that they are exceedingly afraid. They hear of a God who makes everything, and their response is fear. What have you done? And their response further, as we see that they fear the Lord, their response is, all right, what do we do? You're, you're his prophet, although it doesn't really sound like you're his prophet, but if you're his prophet, you ought to know what to do. So the mariners fear the Lord, and they ask him, and, and Jonah's answer is really unhelpful. He answers, he says, yeah, this is because of me, uh, but the, the solution for it, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. Uh, just go ahead and kill me. That's what he's saying. All right, we, we should not think that Jonah was a great swimmer. Uh, everything in the commentaries that I've read says that most Israelites actually didn't go out to sea all that much, all right? Not a great swimmer, probably. And so he's saying, throw me in, that's, that's a death sentence, and so that's his solution to all this. You know what? Uh, just kill me. 
then I won't have to go to Nineveh, uh, and then the sea will quiet down. It's really a win-win for everybody. You know, I don't always think that it's helpful to think about in scripture about what biblical characters could have done. Um, And so take this with a grain of salt, but I think there's at least a couple of things that we may be able to think of that maybe Jonah should have said differently. Maybe he should have said when they asked him that, maybe he should have said, guys, this doesn't have anything to do with you. I, I need to repent. I need to fall on my face before this God that I have completely ignored and tried to run in the other direction and I need to repent to him. And then you probably need to turn around and take me back so I can go to Nineveh. Let me, let me pray to the Lord now. That's not what he does. Not only does he want to completely continue to abandon what God has told him to do, but now he's inviting these sailors to put his blood on their hands. And so the first way that we see them fearing the Lord here is that they don't want to do that. They say, it's verse 13 says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. You know, it seemed unwise to them. They had just heard about this God who, who rules and controls everything. And then they hear that this guy is their prophet. And it obviously seems like he's not really obeying him, but it seems pretty unwise for them to kill this prophet of the Lord. That just seems like it would make a bad situation worse. And so they won't kill him. They're going to try and save him. They're going to row hard back to land. They're kind of like King David. King David had multiple uh, times where he could have killed Saul, and yet he didn't do it. He's like, I am not touching the Lord's anointed. These pagans are acting more like King David than the very person who should have been acting like King David is acting. They fear the Lord and they don't want to spill the blood of the prophet. But when the storm continues to grow more and more tempestuous, the second way that they fear the Lord is that they cry out to God. And we know, it's, if you look at the text, it's different when they're saying gods, you got the little g there, um, and, and even the God of heaven, when it talks about that, it's using all lowercase letters. But if you look in your Bible, down at verse uh, 14 is where we're at, it says they called out to the Lord. You see that? All capital letters there. That is what our English Bibles do when the name Yahweh is used. These pagans have gone from pagan worshipers of every idol they could get their hands on to praying to the one true God. And they're crying out to him. They say, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They are acknowledging God's control and power over them and over Jonah in this situation. They're acknowledging that and they are begging for mercy from the God of heaven and ask for pardon for what they are about to do. And so they do it. They hurl him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then in verse 16, we see the last way that these men fear the Lord. They feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. 
They saw the storm come, they saw the storm get worse, and they saw the storm cease immediately, and they respond by worshiping the Lord. It was a psalm, Psalm 107, uh, verses 23 through 32, that I, I think if you look at that, I'm just going to give it to you for homework today, but go, there, go write that down, Psalm 107, 23 through 32. I don't know if that psalm is describing this situation, but it seems a whole lot like it. They are worshiping the Lord even as, uh, as they have seen him work and they have seen his power and control over them. And so I just wanna, I wanna close with several uh, points of application that we need to remember from this text. The number one thing is this, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. You know, often I think, uh, sometimes we, we look, and actually at Theology Week that we were at this week, Pastor West talked about this a little bit. But often we think that because the New Testament has been written, we think that, that we don't have to, to fear God anymore. We see all of these crazy and powerful and mighty things that God does in the Old Testament. And for some reason, we think that the, since the New Testament has been written, now God's a little more tame. He's a little bit more, you know, uh, we, can, we can deal with him a little bit better. God does not change. The same God of the Old Testament is the exact same God of the New Testament. If you need a little bit more proof as to why we should fear God, how about we listen to Jesus who said, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Another reason we can just think about this and realize God is a God not to be trifled with is Acts 5. That's after Jesus has written, the church is starting to form. Then there's two people, Ananias and Sapphira, who think they can pull the wool over the church's eyes and not tell them about how they kept a little bit of money uh, to themselves and gave the rest to the church. They tried to deceive everyone and make make them think they had given them everything. And what happened to them? They fell over dead immediately. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 gives us a strong warning about why we ought to fear the Lord and respect how powerful he is over us. It says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For him, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a really, really tough passage. And if you, if I just created questions there, I invite you. Nathan preached a sermon on that about two years ago. Go and listen to that. But the point is this. God is a God to be feared. God is not safe. He is a God full of justice and wrath against sin. And each and every one of us are sinners. 
And we'll remember in a second why God is merciful, but I'm just going to let you sit with that for a minute. And I just want to ask each and every one of us today that question that we began with. Who are we more like today? Are we like Jonah? Are we like the mariners? Are we like the mariners before they heard about the Lord? Or are we like the mariners who after they heard about the Lord? Brothers and sisters, are we like Jonah, the silent hypocrite? Are we content to remain silent while the broken world around us gropes for answers to the questions that they will never find on their own? Are we content to let the world pass us by and not extend the true hope of the gospel to them? Or are we like Jonah? Do we say we fear the Lord? Do we say with our mouths on Sunday morning? Do we come and sing of worship songs? Do we listen to the sermons? Do we, do we greet each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? And then do we go throughout all of our week and does our life match up with what we say we profess we believe on Sunday? Do we say we follow Jesus and yet our lives tell a very different story? Or, friend, are you here and you do not know do you see the brokenness in your own life and in the world and are you trusting in things other than God to solve those problems are you trusting a a political party are you trusting psychology sociology economics any of those things all of those things will continue to leave you broken What we need to remember, even as we think about that and we think, who am, who am I more like? We need to remember that God in this story is showing mercy to both the wayward Jonah and to the pagan mariners. God is merciful today to you if you are a, a Christian who has been living another way and yet you say you've professed faith in Christ God is merciful to you. If you are a pagan and have been trying everything else other than submitting yourself to the truth of the gospel, repenting of your sin and, and trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to save you from your sin, God is merciful today to you. And God has shown that to all of us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who is that great Savior and Redeemer that we talked about in our catechism question. He is the one who knew no sin yet became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He is the one who came and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he is God's mercy towards the, towards the hypocrite and towards the pagan alike. And to both, 
There's an invitation. And I'll close with this invitation from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love, for David. That covenant was fulfilled in the great Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.